morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Mormons International Edition. My name is Georgia Travers. And I am Daniel Yanez. How are you, Georgia, today? Yeah, I'm doing well. We're missing someone, though. Yes, we are. Uh, we are uh, going to be joined hopefully soon by Daniel Ferreira, our third international host, the other Daniel. Uh, so yeah, if you see him popping into the into the episode later on, don't be surprised. He'll be joining us shortly. But We hope uh, that he will be able to join us soon. Hopefully. And if not, well, he's going to delight you in an upcoming episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we'll see him at some point in the future. <laughs> b- b- busy lives, busy lives. But yeah, it's been a busy week, yet a slow news week, I believe. Uh, Yeah, definitely. A slow news week for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but a very busy news week for the community of Christ. Yeah, why don't we jump right into that? You want to introduce this one, Georgia? Yeah, absolutely. So the community of Christ used to be known as the reorganized Latter-day Saint Church. Is that correct? I'm not sure if I've said that in the right way. Yeah, I think it was like Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was like the same name, just with the reorganized moniker at the start. Yeah, they they were known as uh, RLDS. And then they rebranded to the Community of Christ. And they have chosen a new prophet president this week. It's been announced, which is exciting. And what's even more exciting is that this new leader is a female. So this is the first time that this has happened in the community of Christ. Up until a few generations ago, it was actually just descendants of the Smith family, who was the prophet president. But now they've chosen a lady. And that's exciting. What are your thoughts, Daniel? Yeah, I'm really here. Uh, The name of the new president prophet of the former RLDS church or community of Christ, her name is Stacy D. Cram. I believe that's how you pronounce it. She's 61. The first woman, as you said, uh, approved by the 2025 World Conference. Uh, I, I think this is, it's interesting to look uh, beyond just our uh, kind of church community as defined by, you know, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints slash Mormon Church slash uh, headquarter in Salt Lake City, President Nelson, the prophet, right? Because if you go back a few generations, uh, there are many branches of, of the, the original restored church during the time of Joseph Smith that then you know, kind of exploded during that succession crisis. And these are our close, I don't know if the closer cousins, so to speak, but definitely the second biggest one. I believe the uh, community of Christ has around three or 400,000 members around the world. So uh, much smaller than the 16 million baptized members in our church. Uh, but uh, still a sizable presence. Uh, how much did you know about them, Georgia? Because I'm wondering, like, from your experience as a convert to the church about 10 years ago to, to now, I don't know how much exposure you've had to kind of this wider view of Mormonism outside of, of, of our church. Yeah, well, if you'd asked me that question about 24 hours ago, I would have told you that I'd never heard of that church at all. But oh, since really? uh, hearing this news about this uh, this Stacy Stacy lady Stacy Cram, I I went down the rabbit hole today. I have to admit, uh, my one year old <laughs> twins were napping, the house was quiet, and I started looking into this uh, very interesting church. So, 
few points to note. They have 24 leaders, 12 of them. I don't know if this is by chance or by design. 12 of them are male, 12 of them are female. So you Mm. can have female bishops, you can have female first presidency. Now they're going to have a female prophet Mm. slash president, which I think is, is quite exciting. The process for choosing this lady was also very interesting. So the previous prophet who is still the prophet now has essentially decided to retire and i i just find that fascinating i wonder if maybe that's healthy i watched a video where he announced his his resignation or his retirement i suppose and he said i'm doing this for for my health and my happiness and i thought there was something nice about that but then they went into this uh sort of time period where as a church they prayed together for the holy spirit to be able to choose their next leader. I thought that was quite quite interesting. And they've they've now obviously announced it this week. The uh the Stacy Cram, I think she was already fairly high up in their congregations. I think she was already in the first presidency or, yeah, or equivalent. That's what I saw. She was a counselor to the to president. Vesey, Vesey, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, the, the current prophet. Uh, mm. but but yeah, she was there in that presidency. Yeah, yeah. It it's an interesting church. Like you said, it, it's a lot smaller, but seems to span across the world. I think they've got a fairly large online presence. The nearest congregation to us, because for the for the listeners, Daniel and I live in a similar area. We're in the same ward. The, the nearest congregation for the community of Christ is actually within our stake boundaries. Interesting. Oh, is it? So, I, ha- I haven't checked it. Where is it? In Enfield, so about oh, 30 it? minutes from where we live. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, so, yeah. North of London for those listeners. uh, uh outside the UK. Who may be unsure where Enfield is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I wasn't sure where that was until that word got added to our stake. So I'm this glad is I true. know that. This is true. Yeah. 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 Uh, but there are a few congregations of the community of Christ around England. Hmm. Another point that I found interesting is that quite a few of their leaders out of those 24, so the 12 males, the 12 females, they were represented, representing quite a few countries. So I didn't have time to go through them all. But there are a few from the US. I saw uh, a lady from the Dominican Republic, a lady from Tahiti. I saw, uh, what else did I see? All over, all yeah, over the there globe. Were a, f- a few Latin Americans from what I saw from Africa. It was quite diverse in, in from, from from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, for me, it's a, well, first of all, uh, I'm really excited for our brothers and sisters in the community of Christ. I think that, uh, we have a lot to learn from each other. And uh, I think as I was growing up, I do remember hearing about them. I'm thinking like in the early or mid-90s that uh, they also had a presence in Chile. Back then were, they were still called the RLDS Church. And I remember hearing stories of members that would leave our church to join them because they had missionaries. I remember stories that I've never been able to verify that are probably just urban myths that they also had missionaries with name tags, but the name tag was like a different color and things like that. <laughs> and always with this aura of, oh, they just want to come and poach our, our members and, and take them elsewhere and, and whatnot. Uh, and then I my, my second encounter with them, because that was when I was like in primary and my early years in youth, before my mission in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, uh, after I graduated high school, kind of that year in the middle, I remember reading a lot about church history, about m- many, many things. And I found the same rabbit hole that you found yesterday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, 
what about this RLDS church? And I found out that they had just recently changed their name to the Community of Christ. And I was like, oh, why is that? Like, the, you know, the name is quite important. You know, it's kind of codified in the Doctrine and Covenants. And, and the origin of the RLDS church, sorry, the Community of Christ comes from mainly members that did not join the saints moving to or, or uh, traveling to to the West, to Utah, to, to flee Nauvoo, right? And they stayed there for uh, years and years and Eventually, the son of Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith III, uh, became their leader, and they reorganized the church, hence the, the original name of, of this church. So I, I was like, wow, they changed their name. How does this work? And I, I went to check, and they still had a Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, but they had different Doctrine and Covenant sections. They had like up to 165 or 170 sections, and I read some of those. I was like, wow, this is so like different yet familiar. And I started looking at how how does their church structure work? They oh they have a first presidency as well. And I do remember at that time it was the first time that I saw a female general authority in in a restoration church. They had a counselor as well that she was a counselor to president the, the current one, I believe. Or they had they were just transitioning from the previous. And I was like wow they 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 give the priesthood to to women. Let's find out more about that. And I think they had made the change a few years earlier. Can't remember exactly when. And started to find out how that divided the church as well, and created a lot of people that, you know, didn't agree with it and left, and and, and a lot of these changes that we're seeing now as a, as a church that has definitely moved in a, in a direction that is very deliberate on that end. Uh, also, navigating the friction that that created, changing the name of their church, eventually kind of deprioritizing the the, the importance or the status that the Book of Mormon held as scripture to them, and moving more towards a, a more mainline. Uh, Christianity outside of restorationism. That was all very fascinating to me. And I hope that I'm not misrepresenting the journey of the community of Christ, by the way. If you have any listeners from there, we would love to be uh, informed and send us feedback. Uh, we're uh, trying to cover this uh, in the most respectful way, acknowledging that we don't know much about it. About it. Uh, but I, I do find it fascinating as well. And the last thing I can say about it is um, that... It feels a little bit like when you have family members that you are completely not in contact with them, and then eventually you find out that they exist, and you're like, oh, wow, they're so different, yet we have so much in common. And you see kind of the similar kind of face features and, and all of that. It feels a little bit like that. It's a bit uncanny, but at the same time, nice. So I, I don't know. I, I'm excited for yeah. them, and and I wonder how much we could humbly learn from all those things without uh, exchanging that for any of our core tenets and beliefs, right? I think a lot of us may struggle with that, like, but, you know, we have these truth claims about being the true church, and they're definitely not, right? But that doesn't mean that we cannot, like, look and, and kind of learn and, and, and maybe see some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a lot we could learn from them. Certainly, I was fascinated today because this was the first what did you call it, Rest restorationist church that I'd come across other than our church. So most of the churches that I'm familiar with are born out of, you know, the um, the 1600s, the, ch yeah. the Church of England, the Reformation, 1600s yeah. onwards. Yeah, you know, Methodists and Baptists, etc. But But this was the first time that I'd come across a church that had the same roots as us. I decided to go straight to the source when I was finding out about them. I didn't I didn't go on Reddit or anywhere like that. I'm like, okay, let's just go on their church's website and see what they have to say. And I found this, what I consider to be very interesting, 80-page document that essentially had a, a, a statement, a vision statement for what their church was. And interestingly now, 
I sense that they are moving slowly away from some of the doctrines that we hold true in our church. So, for mm. example, they now accept the Trinity, which was something mm. that I, I didn't know was was something that happened with, with churches that, that come from Joseph Smith, I suppose. Yeah. And it said in it that some members are now choosing not to read from the Book of Mormon. So I wonder over the next 10, 20, 30 years how the community of Christ will evolve, whether it will continue to um, divert from... Or yeah, what's that word? Yeah, like that I'm looking for yeah, to like go apart s- from, like a schism, or yeah, or yeah, to move. Yeah, not away necessarily. From. Yeah, move away. Yeah, yeah. That that's interesting to to see, and and I do reflect as well on what does it mean for us, and how much we maybe have not realized how how, how our church has moved, uh, not away necessarily, but how how it has evolved from some of those core beliefs or, or, or tenets and and also how the the structure of our church either encourages or prevents from that because we are a church that believes in continuous revelation and but but that's very much in tension with the belief that there are some unchanging truths right and uh you know it, it's, it's always interesting to 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 see and to evaluate something that uh, i wanted to ask you your your perspective as a woman and as a woman leader in our church, uh, which is a church that uh, you know has a very different priesthood structure and all of that. Uh, I don't know. I want to know your thoughts and uh, about how we in our church, uh, uh, what the place of of female leaders is in our church. Of course, there's a very big difference uh, in the in the community of Christ at the moment, as we're seeing with a female prophet. Do you have anything to share on that? I don't know if I'm articulating the question very well, but I'm very curious to, to hear yeah. some of your thoughts. I think you articulated the question perfectly. And my honest response is that I don't have much of an answer for you. I mean, women in our church historically were treated very differently from the way that they're treated now which I think is good I think we have a long way to go do I necessarily uh, to to tackle the big question do I think women should hold the priesthood I don't know is is my answer to that and I don't think I can I can have a discussion on that without reading and, and and going into into a lot of detail with it I don't know. What I will say is that I did think it was refreshing to see the community of Christ and to see those women uh, comfortable in in those roles, comfortable in those leadership positions and really matching the same vision uh, with the men and, and having a, a sort of real momentum in, in going forward. I think I think we could learn a lot from them. I really do. I really do, yeah. but I don't. I don't necessarily know if that means women holding the priesthood, but whether it means cutting out a lot of the traditional stuff that we do. So, I, I mean, I've I've spoken to you about it a thousand times, Daniel. Why can't women conduct more meetings in the church? Hmm. Stuff like that. I I just don't understand as as someone who sometimes considers themselves an outsider because I'm convert coming into it. I just I don't really get it. So I think in terms of the representation of women, I think that needs to change. And I think we could go a lot further with that. Does that necessarily need to extend to women holding the priesthood? I don't know if it does, because I think men and women have very different roles. But then I think, you know, do we... It's it's just a tricky one. I don't don't have an answer. Yeah, and I agree with you that I think that there's a lot uh, of... um, the policy or culture or tradition that is still embedded in our church that that 
that doesn't necessarily justify some of our practices when it comes to the, the split of leadership uh, between uh, men and women. Uh, for example, right now, where, where I serve, in the calling that I serve, I would love to have more women that, that could serve in some callings where I don't necessarily see a priesthood need. <laughs> I'm thinking of Sunday school. I'm thinking of, of many other, other things, clerkships and, and executive secretaries and many things that but where I don't see a need for that. Uh, that are not key holding callings, uh, but but we'll see. We'll see how things evolve. Because even if you look back five, ten years, there's already been a lot of that trimmed and and, and changed with uh, women now and, and, and younger people becoming witnesses in ordinances and things like that. It feels a little bit like baby steps when you use the community of Christ as a benchmark. But then we get into a theological discussion as uh, as to what you were mentioning, like who should hold the priesthood and why, and. Uh, we will not pretend that in this episode we'll be able to answer that question, right? But it's great to have the discussion, though. Thanks for your thoughts on that, uh, George. I don't know if you have anything else to, to to share on that that you would like to. I think just that I would like to discuss it more. But I think if we spent all of our time talking about this, then we'd be doing our listeners a disservice because there, <laughs> there are some other news items that we need to cover. So shall we move on? Yep. We What's can pick that up another time. So... Let's go to our next news item, which is the first presidency have announced changes to the presidency of the 70. So obviously, Patrick Kieran, he was called into the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And so that left a gap in the presidency of the 70. So we've now got some some gaps that have been filled, right? Yeah, that's right. We've got Elder uh, Carl B. Cook, and don't forget the B, the middle <laughs> name, <laughs> and Elders Marcus B. Nash, so two B middle names, uh, filling vacancies created with, with that move from uh, uh, of Elder Kieran, without a middle name, uh, to the Quorum <laughs> of the Twelve. So uh, Elder Cook uh, becomes the senior president of the 70. I believe that seniority is purely based on exactly that, on he's been the, the one serving there the longest and therefore presides over the other seven presidents of the 70. I've always found that kind of symmetry or that, that, that symbolism of seven presidents, all of that, kind of fascinating because it's the only quorum, the only body, kind of governance body in the church that has that rather than having like a president and counselors or just a single person. Uh, but yeah, he becomes the the senior president. And then Elder Nash, who was called in 2006. I remember him when he was sustained. I was serving a mission. Uh, and I do remember the names from back then for some reason. I don't remember the ones from new general authorities anymore. <laughs> Too much information. But yeah, Elder Nash has been around for nearly two decades already serving as a general authority. I don't know how much longer he has. He probably was called quite young. But he is the new uh, junior uh, member of the presidency of the 70. I think we learned that he was serving in some of, of the uh, church committees before that. I believe he was serving in the missionary committee, if I'm not mistaken. Both are um, uh, men that uh, were raised in the West, in, in Utah, I believe, both of them. Uh, have you met any of them? I have met Elder Cook in, in a couple of trainings here, but I have not met or heard of Elder Nash other than knowing that he's been around for a while. No, I mean, my only contact with them would have been listening to them at General Conference, I believe. I, mm -hmm. I, I'd heard the names before, but I couldn't tell you the faces or the talks necessarily. Yeah. If I remember correctly, Elder Cook spoke one or two conferences ago and he shared an anecdote when he was a new general authority or a new Area 70 with Elder Packer, the former apostle, 
uh, that he sent him to give a talk, like an unplanned talk, and then to go back and go back. If I remember correctly, it was him that shared that anecdote. That was quite, quite interesting. And yeah, my opinion of him is is, is very good. Uh, I was, uh, I think he was here in the UK in two thousand twenty-two. Yeah, a year, a little over a year ago, with the other elder cook from the Quorum of the Twelve. And, ah, I remember uh, this now. Two, yes, two elder. Yeah, cooks, the two cooks. I do remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were here not that long ago. So yeah, best of luck. Well, best of luck is probably not the best phrase, but we wish them the best in in these new assignments and this in their service. New, Absolutely, new callings. Yep. Absolutely, and some other new callings. I guess the young men uh, presidency have announced that their advisory council has nine new members that have been added to it. Yeah, a lot of new members. Uh, it was interesting to see some of the reactions on social media to, to this because just a few months ago, I believe we had the same announcement, but for the young women yes. advisory board, and the there are some differences <laughs> between the two advisory boards that are worth uh, discussing. Before going there, uh, I think it's worth noting that I do know at least one of them actually. Uh, one of them, uh, Larry Laycock. Sorry, Larry R. Laycock, don't forget the middle initial. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for listeners, uh, that's a pet peeve that both Georgia and I share. We cannot find an answer as to why everybody has to be referred by their uh, first name, middle initial, and surname. But we accept it. We're not going to fight a battle on that. Uh, We'll just mention it every time we record a podcast. You know, just, yeah. Inevitably, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. Larry R. Laycock, he was a mission president in Chile, actually. Uh, you need I, to tell the story to the listeners. This yeah, is definitely. an amazing story. Yeah, so when I moved back to Chile after studying uh, in the U.S., we moved to uh, a stake that was part of his mission, the Santiago East Mission. And just the year before, Chile was hit by a massive earthquake, like an 8.8 earthquake that to this day is in the top five or top 10 of the biggest earthquakes ever recorded. I was lucky enough not to be there, but I do remember quite well the aftershocks. Like the aftershock lasted for over a year. And wow. yeah, yeah, a year, year and a half. It was that massive. And it, the epicenter of the earthquake was actually on my mission where, where I served in southern Chile. So he, Brother Lacob, was serving with his wife as mission president uh, in in Santiago, like 500, 400, 500 miles north of the epicenter, but still the earthquake there was huge. And back in the day, those older listeners might remember that over a decade ago, there was this kind of viral story. It was a letter that Sister Laycock wrote and shared uh, about the experience that they had before the, the earthquake occurred. Uh, she recounts uh, some uh, teachings from Elder Scott from the Quorum of the Twelve. He passed away about eight years ago now, but he taught at one moment, uh, one time to I don't know if to them directly or to many mission presidents that in the middle of the night sometimes the idea ideas might come to their minds uh, about what to do and some prompts and not to take them for granted and to write them down and, and to action you know th- th- those impressions. And one night she shares a couple of weeks before the the earthquake, 
Sister Leiko remembers waking up and having this strong impression that there was going to be an earthquake in Chile and that they needed to get prepared for it and to get the missionaries prepared for it. Um, she uh, recounts that she started working with the missionaries serving in the mission office at the time. She shared th this impression and that a couple of those missionaries shared the same impression, that they had had dreams where they felt that somebody, something was coming, an earthquake, and that they needed to get prepared. So they started doing it. They shared it with the mission. Everybody was like, what's going on? Like, do they know something that we don't know? And there was a bit of speculation, but they were like quoting this scripture that says, if you, shall, if you are prepared, you shall not fear. Uh, so they started to put together uh, three-day kits or 72-hour kits and things like that. And eventually, the earthquake hit, and it was a massive earthquake. Uh, I've heard way too many uh, anecdotes and stories about the earthquake, even though I was not there to know that it was a highly traumatic event. And when that happened, um, uh, you know, the missionaries were, were ready to, to respond to it. So a couple of weeks after that, this letter from them went viral that this had happened. And it was super interesting to see the, the reaction. Uh, I think in our church, we have a couple of factions, one that is more prone to take in and, and promote the, those types of stories, kind of on the realm of miracles, and uh, another faction that is more skeptical and might call to question the, the public nature of sharing this very big, big event. Uh, but regardless of where you find yourself, in one of those two factions or a third faction, it, it is a fascinating story that seems to have many witnesses and pretty well fact-checked. So we're going to put the story in the show notes. It's a letter uh, that was written by them. It is super interesting. So President Laycock, former President Laycock, now is part of the uh, advisory board. And also we have Danny joining us now. We told you that he was going to join us. We promised and he delivered. Hi, Danny. <laughs> can you hear us? How are you? Can you hear me well? Yeah. I think I think you can. Yeah. Uh, yes. President Lake, interesting story. He was the mission president by the time Danny and myself were in the Santiago East mission yep. in Chile. So it's, I mean, again, seeing this from a very international perspective is just nice to have this opportunity to get to know all these leaders and all these people that have been assigned to different places and, and how their service might impact their lives and, and in a way allow them or enable them in the future to, to get to be called yeah. to certain leadership positions where they're more exposed. Right. And, and I, I think that's, that's only reasonable, right? I think the, the whole challenge of being called as a mission president is such a huge endeavor that people that get, again, uh, deemed, you know, worthy, but more than worthy, prepared to be called as mission presidents. I think it's only, you know, a waste if they're not called to other service positions in the church. Again, just because they were in such an intense uh, service for, for at least three years, right? So it's yeah, I think, I mean, I, kind of a, I think a reasonable thing. I agree that missionary service is a, a good preparation for a responsibility of this kind. I do want to speak about the elephant in the room, though, about the, the wider group. Some commenters online made the very valid point that I think the youngest one in this group is in their early 50s or mid-50s. <laughs> uh, the vast majority of them have a kind of a pretty American upbringing. I think there's one actually from Chile, Brother Maluenda, whom I know of. I haven't yeah, Brother Maluenda. Uh, but all the rest seem to be either American or mainly kind of Ang Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and, and Brother Maluenda has been serving in the church in the U.S. for some time now. Oh, I, okay. I, I actually believe he was living in the U.S. for at least 10 or maybe more years. Okay. I, I don't have the, the specific detail, but at least he, yeah. he was a mission president. 
in uh, North America as okay. well, in, in the U.S. Okay. The US now, what, you know, soil. What, what are your thoughts about, about this, especially contrasting it? I think right before you joined, Danny, we were talking about the differences with the you know, Women Advisory Board, where we saw women across various age groups, some as young as 24, 25, others well into their 50s or 60s, a majority that, that was a much much wider representation of the experiences of, of women, especially on the younger side. Um, how do you feel? From, how do you feel about it? Uh, both of you from a management, uh, from a management and from a, you know, business perspective, you, you need an advisory board that actually advises you. Right. And if you have a, such a homogeneous group, you're not going to get, uh, you know, differing isn't, voices. Isn't there. So, a, so a little bit of a risk of an echo chamber, of probably very similar ideas uh, from a couple of generations absolutely. detached from the current youth. <laughs> That's my fear. I mean, even even myself, I'm 40 years old and I feel very detached from a 20-year-old, not because I don't want to understand. It's just because we're from different generations and it was uh, I was living a different kind of world, right? Uh, I saw the transition between, I don't know, uh, telephone, internet to cable to, you know, yeah. social media and, and whatnot, right? So I think even though you might feel yourself that you're connected to a wider, you know, audience, it's very hard, you know, because you get, you, you start aging and you start, you know, forming your own values and family. And then you get into this echo chamber within the boundaries of your family. Right. I mean, your spouse, most of the time is someone that might agree or not with you, but you're from actually pretty similar generation. Right. So, I don't think it's that easy, you know, to... Yeah, I share that that concern. Georgia, what do you think about this, if you have any thoughts? Yeah, I have to admit, I was a little disappointed when I scrolled through the names and saw where all of, who all of them were and where they were from. I trust there's a reason for it, but I, I echo what has been said by both of you, that it does feel uh, a little strange as if the, the voices will be largely the same and I feel like in today's age we're so lucky to have the internet where we can be connected from all all the corners of the globe so why not bring in an advisory council from all of those different places and meet online to me that feels like the only way where you're going to have eyes on the ground where you're going to know the issues in the different places where each of those people are living I just don't understand how it's possible for a worldwide church to be to be led or to be advised I suppose on vital issues for young men when you've got a such a a samey group as you said yeah. a homogenous group of men i think one concern that i have and, and again uh we remind listeners that uh, we are a faith promoting podcast and we are in no way challenging you know the the, the core of, of this right but i think it's valid to to share these concerns in my case i have a bit more skin in the game in that my youngest now uh, turned 11, and so he is in the youth group. So he's going to be a, a direct, uh, you know, he's going to be impacted by by this current uh, leadership. And I, I wonder, for example, what type of messaging will come out of uh, an advisory board and a presidency that... Uh, that needs to advise, for example, on, on important things like missionary service, which we know is a priesthood duty, and, and we preach it like that. Uh, yet I do worry that uh, we would be more likely to articulate a messaging that would be more of a push strategy of, it is a duty, therefore go, without really spending time thinking as to 
why is it that youth maybe don't want to serve missions, right? And having that conversation, which I believe people that have served it recently, much more differently than, or, you know, th these lovely brothers that were called uh, with the internet, with calling families once a week, with, with all these many changes that have occurred, you know, I, I wonder how much of a true reflection of a mission uh, that they experience and that would be relevant now. And the other thing that I was thinking is, I'm thinking that these two advisory boards, young men and young women, they do work together. And I think of the dynamics on a council where all of the men are well in their 50s with a lot of experience in leadership callings in the church. And the other advisory boards where you're going to have very young women leaders where there's already kind of a built-in <laughs> disadvantage, so to speak. And now we add an age disadvantage. So that kind of the, the balance seems really off and doesn't sit well with me. While I'm still willing to raise my hand and sustain it, uh, I, I wish this is not something that, uh, I mean, I wish we saw something different in the future. Uh, that, that's my very transparent opinion about it. And we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I totally agree. And am I willing to sustain these, these men as leaders? Yes, I am. I just have questions about why they've chosen what they've chosen, but maybe it's not my place to, yeah. to ask the questions. They, they may prove us completely wrong, and I hope they do. I hope these are just, just valid concerns, but no more than that. So thank you for bringing this up, Georgia. I think it's a, it's a great uh, topic to cover, and I think the, the discussion on social media will continue uh, on this. Anything yeah, else definitely. on that? Should we move to the next one? Oh, I just think, you know, this happening in the same week as the RLDS church choosing their first women prophet, you know, it just, the juxtaposition between the two, uh, it does sting a little bit, but mm. we move on. We do. We do. Thanks, Georgia. Well, we've got some really nice news next. We've got yep. some news about temples, which Temple is wonderful. News. So yeah. uh, we've got... Elder Christofferson, uh, one leader, dedicates two temples on two consecutive Sundays on two continents. So it's the first time that's happened in, in quite a while for Elder Christofferson there. So he was in uh, in Utah and in Peru, right? In yep. Lima. In Lima, Peru. Lima, which, yes. by the way, the Lima, Peru, Los Olivos Temple, it is the f that turned Peru into the first city outside of the U.S., I believe. Uh, to have two temples within their metropolitan area or like their acknowledged metropolitan area. And that's a dedication that I've been hearing a lot about because a lot of missionaries that serve with me in Chile are from Peru and we still keep in touch quite frequently. So we were learning all about this uh, dedication the, the last week. Also, our former mission president is currently the area president there and he's in that WhatsApp group. So we're getting a lot of kind of inside information and Kind of unofficial pictures of what was going on. And it was quite, quite great. We have a very good friend there who's a stake president who the last year was hit by a very uh, uh, challenging uh, uh, disease and he was nearly paralyzed. He, he was very close to, to dying. Fortunately, he is on the path to recovery, but still unable to, to move on his own. And he was able to attend and actually was invited to be in one of the dedicatory sessions in the celestial room which was okay. a huge, huge blessing and also gave us an, another view into what that f feels like, especially for local people when, when, when that's happening. Uh, I've went through the, the process of a 
temple being rededicated when when I was on my mission. The Santiago Temple was rededicated by President Hinckley, and that was huge. I couldn't go, but that was still huge to to be there and to, to join the the broadcast. And and then on my mission, they dedicated a temple in 2018 in Concepcion, and it it it, it always kind of hits home when. Uh, in a good way when when that happens. So it was a delight to see that. Also, Elder Christofferson, he's a Spanish speaker, one of the most uh, prolific and fluent Spanish speakers in the Quorum of the Twelve. And I think it's great that he he gets to go and and do these proceedings in Spanish. Uh, It also always helps to local people to be taught the gospel in their own language as we read in the Doctrine and Covenants. So it's really cool. And I anticipate a lot of firsts coming with future temple dedications and announcements because we have such a huge backlog, right? There's like more than 100 that are going to be coming up. Yeah. And speaking of which, there's uh, new temple dedications announced in Argentina, Guatemala, and Utah. So that's uh, another piece of news that we've got there. Yeah. Uh, Another close relationship there with the Argentina one. Uh, My wife lived there in Salta, the Argentina Salta Temple. Her first three years of her life were in in Salta. So I know that my my in-laws are uh, wishing to go there and be in the dedication. Uh, hopefully that will materialize. But it's quite a remote part of Argentina as well, well in the interior, in the northern part. Uh, so it's good to see the church kind of reaching those more remote locales that probably never thought they would get a temple just five, six, seven years ago. So that is really, really cool. Yeah. For, for us, from from a Chilean perspective, sorry, Georgia, uh, the dedication of the Antofagasta Temple was was kind of a similar tone as, as Danny is mentioning about the Argentinian Salta Temple, like a very distant temple. People that lived there had to take a, a plane, an, an airplane, to get into the Santiago Temple and or going to Peru or going to an Argentinian temple, yeah. right? So having nearby temples, I'm not saying that it's a matter of worthiness. It's just a matter of, of you know, opportunity. And, and sometimes life gets so complex and busy that it's not that you don't want to go to the temple. It's just that you don't have six six spare hours, right, to go to or drive to one place for two hours, uh, worship, and then go back home, right? So having closer temples allow all of us in whichever circumstances we've got to worship, right? And and. And sometimes we take those things for granted when we have a closer temple to us, right? But when it's two or three hours away, the, the thing that I'm experiencing, for example, now here, mm. I have closer temples, but it's two hours and a half, three hours and a half, right? So even, I don't know, with the best of intentions, it's very, very difficult to yeah. to go and, 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 and do a session. So it's it's lovely to see and, and i and i applaud all the church efforts on on building temples although we've discussed before the fact that they're very expensive and they take some time and and even then maintaining those temples running is such a huge and such a huge endeavor so mm-hmm. i always wonder and there's no spreadsheet obvious reason about it. It's definitely a spiritual reason why we've got temples and why the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have decided to build as many temples as possible. Because it's what we need. In the end, mm. uh, no active member of the church will deny the importance, the relevance, and the transcendental you know, experience of going to a temple and, and more importantly, having the opportunity to to go there frequently, right? Mm. So yeah, I think one one last thing I would say on temples is, especially on on the Peru one, there were some lovely pictures in the church news article. Uh, I recommend everybody to go check them. And one thing that is 
somewhat peculiar. I know it's not the only temple. There are many other temples like this, but it, it, the backdrop of the temple is, you know, the, the surrounding areas. It's not like this kind of countryside and like this, this super beautiful place from like a scenic perspective. It's just in the city, right? Not in a rich area or anything like that, which I found quite refreshing that the temple mm -hmm. is just there where the people are. I've seen that with, with some temples. Historically, they tend to be built in more outside areas uh, or generally more, more you know, areas that are not as urban. But I've seen now a trend that temples are being announced much more kind of inland, like within the cities and kind of seeing that backdrop that is very unique for each city, right? I found it really cool uh, that we're not going for the like upscale neighborhoods necessarily we're just building them where they need to be built and i'm sure we're going to see much more of that with the ones upcoming in, in, in the future yeah i um i think that's such an interesting point i'd never considered the location of the temple within the city before but that's quite profound isn't it that the temples are just being built where the people are i mean i love the temple i um as soon as i joined the church it's coming up for my 10-year anniversary as soon as i joined i wanted to to go to the temple and and not just to do baptisms but to be endowed and i i went for my endowment i think it was one year and two days after i was baptized and i would have gone on the one year mark but i think it was a, a sunday and then the temple was closed on the monday so i went on the tuesday after the after the year mark just because i love the temple so much so any temple news i find exciting i love it when they announce temples in general conference so i've obviously been treated to that quite a lot lately and one final point is that the uh, the salta argentina temple it's good old elder christopherson flying back down to south america to dedicate that one so i suppose he's oh. got that that connection to the to the spanish that, speakers that makes total sense he was a missionary in argentina actually i believe so Yes, long... I don't know exactly. I, I believe that that time was Argentina mission, yeah. probably two missions, north and south. And I might be wrong, but I think it was President, sorry, uh, Elder Scott, who was the mission president when he was a missionary. We're going to yeah. have to fact check me on that, but it, it's good to see kind of those that they are trying to honor those relationships when they assign who's uh, um, dedicating a temple, like Elder Holland recently in Saint George. He's born and raised in the area, and he was able to do it after being very close to death. But that was covered on a previous episode. We don't need to yeah. go back there. But great temple news. We're going to probably spend a lot of time on those during the year. Should we go to the next one? Yes, absolutely. I think we've got time for one more piece of news probably today before we, we have to wrap up. Do you want to take us through it, uh, Daniel Yanez? Yes. Uh, so we have a news article here from Axio, Salt Lake City. Even though it's been covered throughout, we have the Desert, New Desert News article about it. It is the announcement of a new managing director for church communication, uh, Brother Aaron Sherinian. Sherinian, I don't know how to pronounce his surname. My apologies. And the article that we looked at first was, the title is Mormon Church Hire Triggers Conservative backlash so what why why is this so uh first of all i'm not fully sure what the role of managing director of church communications is i don't know if, it, if it's the same as the church spokesperson uh, or not but i would assume that they are closely related at least in, in driving the kind of the, the the pr and communication strategy for the church as an institution uh brother aaron sherinan was already uh, in uh, in a communications role for desert a management organization, I believe it's called, kind of this big holding of for-profit entities that the church owns. 
including Desperate News, probably. Uh, so now he's moving to kind of an actual church role as the managing director. Now, why did this create uh, controversy? And the controversy, especially on the conservative side, is because it seems like Brother Sheridan has shared very publicly some opinions on topics that are very progressive uh, related to LGBTQ inclusion and trans rights and, and, and various other things that, to be fair, are quite uncommon to be seen on very senior people within the church organization, either as employees or as leaders. And uh, of course, that created a lot of pushback. Now, more than talking about those controversies and the reaction, like in the article that we will link to in the show notes, there's a good collection of uh, of influential people in the conservative right-wing space in the U.S. and mainly local to, to Utah for the most part that have commented on this. And they are somewhat outraged that somebody that holds those those views can be called to such a prominent position in a church that they see as rejecting that. Um, now, why... I want your views and your opinion. I don't think, living here in the UK, uh, that there's nearly as much of a kind of a visible divide or a, a kind of a visible, how can I say this, an intersection of the political with the religious in, in our wards and stakes and kind of on the daily living uh, in the church. And I might be, might be completely oblivious to it, but it seems to be very, very strong in, at least in the Western US, you know, in Utah and those areas where all of these political uh, views have percolated and kind of gotten mixed up with or religious life uh, in a way that doesn't seem very healthy. Uh, and I, I want to know from you, Danny, first of all, you're in the, in the Eastern US uh, to, to see how, how that is experienced there. And also, Georgia, your views he, uh, here, if, if I'm wrong or if I'm right, you know, maybe... Here in the UK, I don't hear members saying like, oh, the Tories are the party of God, right? Like you do here in the US, like you got to vote Republican, otherwise you are not a faithful member of the church, which are things that you do here. Like I've heard it myself firsthand. Nobody has told me. So uh, maybe, Danny, is it the same on, on the East or is it just a Utah Western thing? Well, of course, I have a very specific skewed perspective because I've been just here in, in the Albany area, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't been in Boston or I don't know, New Hampshire or all those other Eastern areas. But to be fair, no, no one talks about it. And and to be quite honest, kind of no one cares, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, people, people might be very, you know, open, liberal in some cases and conservative in some cases too, right? But there's no political issues or, or, or frictions here. And, and, and I've heard some members of the church openly expressing their uh, Democrat support or Republican support uh, freely, right? That there's no uh, restriction or, or feelings of, you know, like um, uneasy, feeling uneasy because they're expressing their their their, their political position. So uh, I would say, again, from a very outsider's outsider outsider perspective, it's very problematic to think that the church has a political position. 
because it, it doesn't. And, and every election uh, set, every election process, we get a letter from the first presidency reminding us of that. Uh, back in Chile, when we had elec elections, you know, the area presidency from the church will send a letter to be read in sacrament meeting, reminding the members that church doesn't support any political parties in particular, right? So we do it culturally speaking. We have, you know, a clear definition that the church doesn't support any political party however as members we create our own you know stories legends myths about it about certain um renowned uh you know high position leaders that were from the left or the right right and we think that because they had this political position then that's the the official voice of the church And it's so, I would say, weird, even annoying that still people believe that because a member had, I don't know, a position in a certain party, that means that the church supports, right? And and I think I see it that it's so simple to, to, to see the distinction, you know, because members of the church are encouraged to be politically engaged, right, to be community participant and, and having a voice and, you know, uh, trying to, to, to serve and, and, and help the community. That's the only way we can share our light, right, if, if we're talking about it, right? But at the same time, we get obsessed by this idea that the church will think or will deem a particular party as a better fit for our beliefs. Although the official voice of the church over and over, year after year, remind us that the church doesn't have a political position. So, again, now, so... Now that you mentioned those letters for elections and all that, I don't remember receiving those letters here in the UK, in Europe. But I no, might be because maybe it's not an issue. Yeah, I, I don't think it's an issue. Certainly in my almost 10 years now of, of church experience, I've never seen an issue. We've got people in our congregations of all political parties and and we lay that at, at the doors and and we don't bring that into our church meetings as far as I have been aware of maybe I've got my eyes closed but certainly my uh, Daniel Yanez and I we seem to have that that same sort of view that it just it just doesn't come into things here mm. I find it really interesting that this um this poor uh, Aaron has has come under fire I I think it's wonderful that he's a an LGBT Uh, Q plus ally. Aren't we all meant to be allies? Aren't we all meant to uh, give people the the freedom to choose to to do whatever they want to do? That's agency. And I think it's great that he has been uh, given this this role, this high up role uh, in the church, and that he he can have that whilst being an ally to to the people around us. Yeah, yeah and I hope it serves as a, a positive signal for members that because they hold those convictions might feel like they do not have a place in church because they've kind of, they have to live with this assumption either that they extrapolate from the opinions of other members or how they see the church responding to those things as, you know what, there's no place for that. Well, I, I hope that this works actually as a signal that, yeah, you, you, you can be, <laughs> and you should be, <laughs> Uh, a part of our, of our church community, this, uh, no matter what your beliefs are in terms of that. And if anything, it is an encouragement to to reconsider what many of us might, might feel 
or think about that, just as you said. So, and as I'm saying this, I wonder how many of our listeners we have upset it with these views. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I hope that you know this week in Mormons is a space where we can share these opinions. I know we have listeners from all the spectrum of belief, from all the spectrum of political opinions as well. And I, I honestly take it as a great signal that we're not just calling or hiring or appointing people that just fit one mold. Uh, and I'm glad the church did it, actually. It makes me feel more welcome because <laughs> sometimes I do have opinions <laughs> that do not necessarily conform to the majority opinion. And that's really nice. I, I applaud it, actually. Yeah. Um, I would like to... to so Sorry, sorry, Georgia, you want to say something, please. Go ahead. Yeah, I just... I wanted to reiterate uh, what's already been said is that, you know, we... We are a church where we're trying to be inclusive, and I hope that people can can feel that although sometimes we have different opinions, we can we can all worship the same God, and and we can be united in our 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 faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's the most important thing. At the end of the day, we we might have differences, but we can be respectful to one another. And I feel like I've shared some of the issues that I face very candidly in this episode. You know, issues with. Uh, women in the church and with inclusion and, and other things but but at the end of the day I think I've just got to remind myself of of why it is that I choose to be active in this church and ultimately it's it's the faith that I have in Jesus Christ and I think that sort of supersedes anything else really and I would like to add to that that if this is the church of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ served everyone no matter how they look like right and which decisions they made it's a very powerful reminder that uh, we love everyone, right? We're, we're, it's, a, it's a commandment, right? Mm -hmm. To love thy neighbors. And we don't love neighbors that are similar to us, right? We're mandated to love all of our neighbors, right? No matter how they look like, right? Or what decisions they take. So it's just a, a very powerful reminder, I, I would say. And, and this is me talking uh, that if this is the church of Jesus Christ and we're following Jesus Christ and we want to be like him, we love everyone. No matter, it's our love is not conditioned to the decisions people make. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's, 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 that's what I've learned about Jesus Christ's life. And again, it, it might hopefully doesn't rub the wrong way to anyone that is listening to this episode, but I definitely uh, would like to invite everyone to think about it. If, if you're hesitant, if you have doubts about it, yeah. Jesus loved everyone. Right. And, and we are again, mandated. It's, it's a commandment. We'll love our neighbors, no matter which size, color, right, or characteristics they have. And if we're not happy with it, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't be saying this, but but we should ask ourselves, right, uh, who are we worshiping, right? Who are we following? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with some of the controversial things we've shared today, we would love your feedback. So feel free to get in contact with us on uh, contact at thisweekinmormons.com. And as we wrap up today, I just want to encourage you to subscribe to This Week in Mormons on social media, facebook.com forward slash This Week in Mormons and on Twitter at The Real Twim. We hope to see you very soon and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye. See you on Patreon. Bye-bye.